Testament. I said last week we're going to take some time out of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to kind of meander through the Old Testament. And while you find your way there, I, if you're not familiar where Haggai is, it's towards, it's towards the end of the Old Testament uh, between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Right between the two Z's. And so if you're having trouble finding it, that's where you get it. Now, as a point to notice, some of you may be looking for the notes in your Bible app and the YouVersion app. Um, We've stopped using that. Uh, The decision was not made lightly. Uh, I know it's the most popular Bible app, and and several of you have said you appreciate the convenience. I want to discuss that just for a second. Um, I want to bring up this novel idea, this incredible idea. I'm not speaking this prophetically, okay? Um, But bring your Bible to church. It's a big deal. Um, Your kids watch you. Our kids, my kids watch people in church as they're worshiping, as they're following along with the sermon. And, And they don't know that you're staring at notes or following along on a Bible app or checking Facebook. You could be in Philemon or Facebook, Titus or Twitter. They wouldn't know the difference, okay? Isaiah or Instagram, doesn't matter. Kids see that, and they don't see someone in their Bible. And we want to encourage study of the Word here at Faith. In fact, this summer, I've I've even changed the way I format my sermons and and go through the sermon notes because we want the text to come alive and, and be something people can see and follow along with. So I would just challenge you. We do have, on the back of your bulletins, a space for sermon notes. So you can grab a pen from the chair in front of you and follow along and write those thoughts down. Tuck it in your Bible and throughout the week revisit it. The thing with an app is a lot of times we close it out, we forget about it till next Sunday. This is something tangible you can take with you and and keep. Again, this wasn't a decision we just kind of made on a whim. This was something uh, we want you to be able to follow along and take your own notes, things that aren't being spoon-fed to you. Remember, we're, we're trying to be mature Christians, right? That's what Paul and, and the epistles tell us we should do, is be mature in our faith. And uh, I think if we keep spoon-feeding some things, there's a disadvantage to that. So we want to encourage people to bring their Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the seat in front of you or, or underneath you if, you if you'd like. Uh, that's a CSB translation. It's a solid Bible translation. We want to encourage you to follow along with the text. Uh, But we're going to begin reading out of Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, if you will, follow along with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, you don't, if the print's too small, you can always look at the screen. Uh, We try to put the the verses up there as well. Beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you would never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. I'm just going to say a quick prayer this morning. Father, I pray that your word take root in our heart, that we get the message this morning, that we not just hear the sermon, but we live it as we leave. Father, that we take it with us, that we study it, that we go back ourselves and, and look through it and, and test the words of the pastor, test the preaching. Father, that, that we're not afraid to ask questions or, or study or, or get deeper into your word, Father, because it's for us to learn, not just about our sinful nature, but about your loving character. And so, Father, I pray you reveal that today. And we ask your will to be done, not ours. Amen. Now, before we go any further, Jesus points out in John chapter 5, verse 39, and he's talking about the Old Testament, the scriptures. He says they bear witness about him. They testify about him. Well, we're looking at such a scripture today. We're looking at the Old Testament today. So we have to ask, first and foremost, what does this text tell us? What's it tell us about Jesus the Christ? What's it tell us about the Messiah? And I want to answer that before we go any further. The text is clearly showing us that God has a zeal for his temple and that the people have abandoned it. We're going to see God doesn't need a building. So what's the real root here? Well, the answer lies when we look at the New Testament, we understand what is the temple today? What's this tell us about Jesus and his temple, right? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit today. Our bodies as individuals and as a church, we are the temple today. I don't mean the building. I mean us. We're the temple. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. If God says the, te- the temple in the Old Testament needs repairs, it needs rebuilding, then there may come a time, we have to be willing to admit this and understand this, that there may come a time where the temple of the New Testament needs some re- refurbished, right? Rebuilding. There needs to be some reevaluation of what's going on. Now, in the 1500s, there was a huge rebuilding project it involved the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Huss, John Wycliffe, many of those guys. We call it the Great Reformation, Right? But I'm not talking about a need for a global reformation or anything like that, though some denominations today probably would be wise to consider such a thing. No, this message is for us. This is for us to dare to ask that question, has the church gotten off track? Maybe there's some maintenance that's needed. And truthfully, even to stay healthy, there are times where a church has to do a full rebuild. But more than that, we have to look at our text today and we have to ask that question, what about me? needs a rebuild. Why does it have to be done? Rebuilding the temple is very similar to rebuilding a church. And if we want to rebuild the church, and this is the main point today, if you take nothing else away, if you write nothing else in your notes this morning, this is what I hope you get. If we want to rebuild the church, we have to start 
with the Holy Spirit rebuilding us. I'll say that again. If we want to rebuild the church, we have to start with the Holy Spirit rebuilding us. There is so much to get into in this, this text this morning. I, I think Haggai, it, for pound for pound, it's one of the most powerful books in the Old Testament. It's beautiful. The story is, is just laid out so well. And, and for those of you, the, the kids taking notes, the parallel passage, the other book where this takes place in is in Ezra, the book of Ezra. A uh, little bit of history. Ezra and Nehemiah, those of you who attended the, the Wednesday night class this past spring, you know this. Ezra and Nehemiah at one point were one scroll. They were one book together. But along the lines, we divided them. And, and Ezra 5 is really where Haggai 1 begins. And there's so much more into that we're going to get into. But I want to take for a second and and look at the title of today's message is Rebuilding. Rebuilding is more than just rebranding. It's breaking things down to the fundamentals. It's getting down to the foundation, starting from scratch, starting from the very basics, and building something new. It's one reason we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. I've said this numerous times. You've heard me probably a hundred times at this point say, your life imitates your theology. And getting back to the gospel of Mark, getting into who Christ is, who Christ was, and and learning from that and grasping that, that, that's building our theology so that our lives will imitate that. And sometimes we, we have to keep rebuilding. We have to look at those things and go back to those basics. In fact, when you were made a new creation in Christ, those of us, even those of us who've been saved for most of our lives, there are times we get caught in a rut. I know some of this is a popular thing, uh, a stinking thinking mentality, right? We begin to think negative things about ourselves. We lose our focus truly on who Christ is and what he's done for us. Other times, we, we can be in, I hate this term, but a comfort zone. We can get into one of those, right? I know people who get into the most uncomfortable of comfort zones. They, they, they won't get out, though, because it's familiar, it's comfortable and they're unhappy but they stay these are christians who will stay in an uncomfortable comfort zone because it's all they know but there needs to be a rebuilding there needs to be fresh anointing actually fresh things coming into their lives and you know i many of you know this i I love sports i like watching when a team like the 1999 st louis rams rebuilt they went from a 3-13 and 13 team to Super Bowl champions when they made Kurt Warner their quarterback. I like stories like that, those, those rebuild stories. Probably because I'm a Jets fan, and they've been rebuilding since 1963. Maybe you, maybe you know about the Chicago Cubs in 2016. They won their first World Series since, two, uh, since 1908, over 100 years. And they win their first World Series because they dared to rebuild. As much as we like to see teams rebuild, heaven rejoices when an individual rebuilds. Most of all, when a sinner comes to Christ and his or her heart is turned from stone into a heart of flesh. That's what Luke 15.10 tells us. But even when Christians who've developed sin habits, whether knowingly, unknowingly, whether they've meant to or not, when they get on their knees and they repent, those are great rebuild stories. We all have those moments. We should have those moments where we're willing to to get on our face in prayer and say, Lord, what do I need to rebuild? What should I tear down and rebuild? When God gets us back on that narrow path because we've been slipping. And first of all, church, we have to understand that we have to be bold enough 
and brave enough to recognize when there is a need for a rebuild. We read in verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Now, first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the historical context because this is very important to this passage. We're going to look at the historical context and we're going to kind of spiral out from there this morning. Do you notice that Haggai gives us dates? He tells us when this happened because this is an actual historical event. This is verifiable. In fact, there are external biblical sources that talk about this time frame in Israel's history. He does this, Haggai does this, because in Isaiah 45, he prophesies, Isaiah prophesies about a coming king of Persia named Cyrus. And we know from historical record when, when Cyrus took, took the throne. And later there would be this man named Artaxerxes. He would take over the throne. And then Darius, Darius I. That's who we're talking about. In fact, if you were to go to your exact calendar, <clears throat> wow, I'm dealing with a sore throat. I'm not 13, I promise. My voice cracked a little. Okay, if you were to go on a calendar and look up this date, you could actually go and find it. It is August 29th, 520 B.C. That's what day it would be if we had our calendar back then. Now, this is the Hebrew calendar. So he says it's the first of the month, right? And that is a day for the, for the Hebrew mindset. That's a day of celebration. Numbers 10 tells us, On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Eventually, though, what's going to happen is the people's hypocrisy, the people's deceitful, selfish, idol-serving lifestyle is going to contaminate that. And so but going back to Isaiah, he says, at, at, eventually, at this point, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me and I'm weary of them. But then Hosea and Amos, they also rebuke Israel for these feasts. This should have been a time of celebration. This should have been a time they come together for festivities. In fact, the name Haggai means festive. This should be a great, this should be the county fair. And Haggai shows up and, and begins to clean house. There's no celebration mentioned in Haggai here. It's not mentioned in Ezra 5 either. Now the Darius, we're going to spend just a second here. Darius, the one that's mentioned here, He's Darius I. He had seized the throne of Persia in 522 B.C. And what followed were, were seven months to a year at least of revolt, of turmoil, usurpers trying to take over and take it away from him. Long story short, the empire was in chaos. And so this is not the same Darius of Nehemiah 12. That's Darius II. He's going to come along a little later. And they are neither one the same Darius that's mentioned in the book of Daniel. Okay, there are three separate men, Darius I, that's our guy, Darius the Persian, and Darius the Mede. Darius here in Haggai is actually, his full name is Darius Estaspas, and he ruled from 522 to 486 B.C. This is his historically accurate document. 
So we look at that and we, we know that. But what also do we understand? Well, from Ezra, we know there's this king Artaxerxes and he had put the temple construction, he put the kibosh on it, right? But then this Darius comes along, Darius I, and he doesn't seem to care if they rebuild the temple or not. Well, it would make sense. He does not want the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, fighting in his streets. He's already dealt with rebellion. He's already dealt with uprisings. He doesn't want this to continue. So it makes sense that under his rule, Israel would be free to rebuild their temple. And that is when God chooses to speak to his people. In fact, this is the first time, chronologically speaking, this is the first time since the exile God has spoken to Israel. He's not been distant, but he has been quiet. In Ezra, the Bible says that God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to rebuild the temple. That was a few years before this. But he's been active, but he's been quiet. God himself did not speak. And by the time we get to Ezra 5 and Haggai 1, the people had stopped building So God speaks through Haggai, and like I said, it's the first time in the post-exile era. Israel has not had God speak to them through a prophet in about 70 years. So Haggai shows up. It's the end of August. It's the time of the harvest. Pentecostals, you understand what's going on, right? Because we're about the harvest. That's what Pentecost is. It's a feast of the harvest. And it says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And that means Haggai is merely the instrument God is using here. It's God's voice through a man. The only other time in the prophetic books this exact wording is used is in Malachi 1.1. And some translations don't even include it. It came through. Normally when we read about a prophet receiving a word from the Lord, it came to them. They relay the message. This is God speaking directly to his people. Much in the same way, he still speaks to us through his word. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through a prophet. And again, the Holy Spirit still speaks to us today through scripture, the words he inspired. But the question becomes, does does scripture, does does the word of the Holy Spirit still pierce our heart the way Haggai's words are going to pierce the heart of the people? That's something to consider as we go forward this morning. Good question to ask ourselves. Now, like I pointed this out last week, the LSB uses the the name Yahweh when your Bible has Lord in all caps. That's because that's using the word Lord for the, the proper name of God, Yahweh. But either way, when it says the word of the Lord, it's it's meaning God's name, and the emphasis is to convey his unchanging nature. After decades of silence, God is speaking again to his people. And Scripture says Haggai went to Zerubbabel. He's the governor of Judah. Now here's the interesting thing about Zerubbabel. And this isn't in my notes. I'm going to step away from it for a second. Zerubbabel was a descendant of kings. In fact, his grandfather was Jehoiakim, the last king of Judah. And his name, Zerubbabel, means sown in Babylon. He is both literally and figuratively a child of the exile. You realize that's us, right? When Paul talks about sin and how it contaminates us, he talks about Adam. See, we were, he was given dominion over the earth, Adam was. He was basically the king. 
And he had sin contaminate that. And now his descendants are in exile. We don't get to go to the Garden of Eden. That's Zerubbabel. He's a child of the exile. Now, some prophetic books like Daniel and Ezekiel, they refer to the Judah, the king of Judah. That's, that's, not, that's not him. Haggai and Zechariah will both talk about the governor of, of Israel or, or Judah. That's Zerubbabel. See, the line of kings had ended. Their, I'm sorry, the monarchy had ended. The line of kings had not. We know that from Matthew and Luke's genealogies. But Israel, and especially Judah, has not had a king for about 60 to 70 years. So Haggai goes to the governor who was sown in Babylon and he says it's time for a rebuild. Much in the same way the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, hey, I'm going to convict you of this sin. It's time to rebuild. It's time for a change. But then Haggai goes to the priest and his name is Joshua. And if you know anything about names in the Bible, you should definitely know this guy's name because in Hebrew it's Yeshua. Well, who else has that same name? Jesus, right? Yeshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. So he goes to sown in Babylon and Yahweh is salvation. See, the message is already kind of revealing itself there, right? He goes to the head of the state and the head of the temple, except there's no temple. And Haggai says, thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So these are not Haggai's words. If the people reject him, they're not rejecting Haggai. They're rejecting God himself. It's one reason I use so much scripture in my preaching because it's not not to be Jeff's word. It's the word of the Lord. And if you don't like it, don't be angry with the messenger, right? And he calls him, if you notice, he calls him the Lord of hosts. Or Yahweh of hosts. Some translations say Lord of armies. This is, this is so common in Haggai, and if the kids are paying attention to the notes, he says it 14 times in these two chapters. He calls him the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. And why does he do this? It's to remind the people that their God is a divine warrior. He's not some old man sitting on a recliner in the clouds. He is a fighter. He is the Lord of armies. He's in charge of the armies in heaven. He's in charge of those fiery forces we read about in 2 Kings 6 when the prophet Elisha is in this town and they get surrounded by the enemy and the Lord's army surrounds the army that surrounds him. And he says, do not fear. He says to his servant, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's the God we serve. He's the Lord of unseen armies. He's the real commander-in-chief. And what he says goes. But the people, they keep saying the time's not right. It just doesn't work for them to rebuild the temple right now. Times are tough. There's opposition. It's too hot outside. The kids got baseball, right? They want to sleep. And we'll try, I'm projecting a little, sorry. But God says, no, it's time to get to work. Verses 3 and 4 read, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Ah, you see, here's the problem. Here's the actual issue. You see, it's not that the people could not rebuild the temple. It's that they did not want to. 
They'd made time to build their own houses. In fact, they'd, they'd done very nice with their own houses, their own wants, their own needs. But the temple lies in ruin and waste. They make sure to take care of every single thing else. Now, if you jump back to Ezra, and we're going to do that quickly, Ezra 4 tells us why the construction stopped. In Ezra 4.1, the first verse, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, and then we'll get into that, then you skip down to the last verse of Ezra 4, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so something happens between verse 1 and verse 24. What happened between those verses? Well, it's those pesky adversaries, right? It's the people around them. They end up going to Zerubbabel and they say, we want to build with you. We worship the same God. Let us have a part in this. And they say no. Zerubbabel gets Joshua. He's called Jeshua and Ezra. He gets Joshua. He gets the leader of Israel. And they say to the outsiders, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. This is verse 3. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. But what they're not counting on is Cyrus isn't a factor anymore. It's Artaxerxes. Different guy. There's been a change in administration. And so what do these outsiders do? Well, they practice what we call today cancel culture. They go, they go and they snitch. They tattle. Um, King Artaxerxes, they're not letting us have any part. Right? They're, they're complaining. They go to their, their version of social media was write a scroll and have somebody send it out. So Artaxerxes tells them to stop. Hey, I don't, I don't want to deal with this stuff. Just stop it. But then there's another change in the administration. Darius takes over and the people are, are still dragging their heels. Now, of course, we've, today, we'd have the same people coming along saying, well, you know, we could, we could just let those people in and, and let them sweep the floors or maybe bake some bricks. Uh, we need to be friendly with the, the world. We need to be uh, accommodating. Um, we shouldn't be so harsh. We shouldn't call out their false beliefs. Just, just let them come in and, and have a little part, right? Joshua, you should make peace with them. Stop, stop pointing out their faulty theology. No, that's not what they do here. You see, Israel's learned this hard lesson by Ezra 4. They've gotten out of exile. They're free. They're back home. And so they're bold enough, they're brave enough to say, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. Just like there are some, and I'm using quotation fingers, Christian churches that have nothing to do with Christianity. When I was waiting, uh, when we were just coming once a month to preach, and, and it was looking more and more like Lisbon wanted us to be their pastors, and, and we wanted to come here, I had a, vo- a different voice in my ear every week saying, you need to read this book, you need to read that book. And most of those books were, were leadership books telling me how to lead like the world. And I read enough of those books to know by page 80 of every single one of them, they start to repeat themselves. And by around page 150, I've read the book twice and not even realized it. Take this principle from the business world and apply it to your church. No, we're not going to do that here. Because we actually did try that in the 1990s and the early aughts and And it wasn't sustainable. You see, the world catches on when you try to be like the world. 
Oh, let me see your new gimmick. I'd like to see the new gimmick. What's, what's that? Okay, I like this gimmick, but when that gimmick gets old, I want to go find another circus. I want to go find the next big thing. So you can't mesh the business of the world and the business of Christ. They're incompatible. In fact, that was one of the messages from the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to confess something this morning. I told Pastor Calvin I was going to do this. I'm going to confess something to you today. One of the stupidest things I've done as your pastor, and I know there's a long list, but towards the top of that list for myself, one of the dumbest things I've done as your pastor, and before you say amen, hear me out, one of the dumbest things I did was change our mission statement. And I say it was dumb because I shouldn't have changed it. We should have thrown it out altogether. Church, we have a mission statement. It's up on our wall out there if you didn't stop to read it this morning. Go make disciples. Disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. That should be every church's mission statement. We don't have to copy the world. We don't have to reword it. We don't have to perfect it. We have to do it. We have to have it written on our hearts. Not on our walls, not on our bulletins, not on our website. We need to get that in our hearts. Our mission as a church is to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and teach them what he's commanded us. See, what happens is we try to be too much like the world because the world has a success doing it a certain way, but we're not a company selling a gadget, a gizmo, or, or some kind of tech thing. We're a 501c3. You guys have heard me say this. We're giving away the best product in the universe. Christ died for your sins, rose on the third day, that you might have eternity with God. John 3.16. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We don't have to have anything in common with the world. In fact, Paul says for people who, who tell us we should do those things to avoid them, that's what Romans 16, people who don't teach the same thing, preach the same thing, we're, we're to avoid them. The reason the temple was not being rebuilt was because the world tried to creep in and Israel wouldn't compromise and things got hard and they stopped. They shut it down. And it was down for a couple of years and God says it's time to get up. It's time to get back to work. It's time to rebuild. Just like we do sometimes. They hit a bump in the road and they gave up. We get lazy. We get comfortable. You know, the paneled houses that they were living in, paneled houses were common in wealthy residences in this era. A bunch of people had those in Jerusalem. They made sure of that. Meanwhile, the temple just lies in ruin. There needs to be a rebuild, but it has to be the Holy Spirit working within us first if we want to impact our church and if we want our church to change our community. So we have to be honest, especially as individuals. We have to be honest and ask, am I the problem? If so, what's, what's the problem? Haggai 1.5 continues. It says, now therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai appeals again to Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. Why? Because they need to trust Him. Not their own strength, not in Darius, not in the empire. They need to trust Him. He's the God who fights for them. He's their refuge. We saw this last week, Psalm 11. In the Lord, I take refuge. In Yahweh, I take refuge. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Haggai is reminding them, Babylon may have kept us in captivity, but God's the one who put us there. And he's the one who freed us. So God says, consider your ways. Some other translations make it a point to add, set your heart and consider your ways. 
In fact, if you actually read the Hebrew, literally it reads, so then, thus says Yahweh of hosts, place your heart on your ways. Place or set your heart, consider. He says it four times in the book of Haggai. Again, in verse seven, we're gonna get to that. And then in chapter two, he's gonna say it twice. Now then, set your heart and consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Haggai 2.18. Oh, set your heart to consider from this day onward from the 24th day. And he goes on. Their self-centered behaviors, their self-serving ideals, their seed planting, which we'll get to later, it had meager results. They weren't growing. They weren't building anything real because their actions had brought upon themselves a curse from God. Now, if they had been studying his word, if they'd been in the law, they'd know this is what happens. Deuteronomy 28 says, if they were disobedient, if they didn't keep his commands, they'd be cursed in the city, cursed in the field, cursed in their food, in their harvest, in their children, in their livestock. That's what they've brought upon themselves by their disobedience. It wasn't that they didn't have things. We see in verse six, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You see, their efforts to improve their own lives were were futile as long as the temple sat in disrepair. Their houses would be in want as long as Yahweh's house was not being built. I like the way one commentator put it. What they were bringing in was less than expected and what they do bring in does not live up to the expectations. See, we wonder why the church doesn't move like it used to. We wonder why we don't see growth, why we don't experience a a revival or a move of God, but we don't dare ask the question, where's my own heart? What needs to be rebuilt in my life? Does church just check this box so I can say, well, I went to church on Sunday, I can feel good about myself now? Or do we come with an attitude of worship? Do we come ready for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and and move in us, to receive the word? Do we listen to the sermon? Do we live it when we leave? Or do we just close the app? Ah, there we go, right? Some of us, we we don't want to listen to the sermon because we already know it. I'm that kind of guy. I like to go and hear people preach and I don't want to learn new things. I already know all this stuff, right? Well, I should say it used to be that way. Then I started preaching. Don't misunderstand me today. Don't think I'm pointing my finger at anyone here. It starts with the pastor. Someone once asked a missionary, they said, he'd spent years overseas. They said, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church in America today? Without flinching, without hesitating, he said, pastors. He said, wherever you see a weak church, you see these weak men. They're either non-existent, unbiblical, or unconverted. All this talk about judgment on our country, never forget judgment begins with the household of God. So we must dare to ask that question. What's my heart set on? What are my ways? Consider your ways. Are we bold in prayer? What are our motivations when we pray? James cautions us. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so you may spend it on your own passions. That's what Israel was doing. They're building their own house. Are we bold in our evangelism, sharing our testimony? We may be Loving, but are we loving enough to warn people of the dangers of, of sin? Once in a while, yes, we may slip, we may stumble, we may make a mistake. That's human. Praise God for grace. But I want you to notice something here, and kids, this is in your notes. The form of Hebrew being used here 
is the infinitive absolute. In other words, what that means, this is a continuous action. In other words, you keep sowing, but don't have much. You keep eating, but you're never satisfied. You keep drinking. You keep putting on new clothes, but it's never, ever enough. They had a continued heart of rebellion, a continued desire to to take care of themselves over the house of God, to take care of their fleshly desires. So they continue to be in need. And God warns them about it. In fact, if they'd, again, if they'd been in his word, they would have known. Leviticus 26 says, In spite of this, you will not listen to me. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. I want you to hear me on this this morning. And I want you to understand this. Rebuilding the temple did not matter to God nearly as much as rebuilding the hearts of the people. I'll say it again. Rebuilding that temple did not matter nearly as much to God as rebuilding the hearts of the people. Paul makes this very clear in the book of Acts. He says, when he's speaking to the people in Athens, he tells them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Understand this. God does not care about a building. He cares about what that building represented. He cared about their heart for him. This building is not the church. We learned this during COVID, right? It merely represents where the church meets. This is the point where the church launches from each week. This is just where the church gathers to build up one another, to grow one another, to learn, to carry out that mission statement of making disciples. Without the Holy Spirit active in this church, unifying this church, it's a really nice barn. And that's a fact. Without the Holy Spirit, I'll say it again, without the Holy Spirit active in this church, it's a nice barn. It could burn down tomorrow. The question needs to be, will the church survive? The temple's no different. In fact, the temple is going to be rebuilt eventually, and it'll stand for 585 years. During that time, Herod the Great, he's going to come along, he's going to refurbish it, he's going to make it look nice. You could say that's a rebuild, right? But in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. You know what? It doesn't matter. Because the last time I looked, God is still on the throne. Jesus is still Jesus. The Holy Spirit is still active in his church. But it was the condition of the heart that brought about God's reprimand. We read in verses 7 and 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. Then that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Check your heart, consider your ways, then move. Then go. There's a sense of urgency to his words, a need for the people to to turn from their selfishness and start this rebuild of the temple. Only then, God says, he'll be glorified by them. Only then will he be pleased. And it won't be easy. They're going to have to chop down trees. They're going to have to go uphill, literally uphill both ways, right? That's the way my, my dad didn't go to school that way. He's sitting here, so I can't say that he did say that to me. I'll lie about him next week when he's gone. Kidding. Joke. I don't lie in, ever. Unless it's around Christmas time to hide presents from my wife. I'm getting way off topic here. But they're going to have to travel. They're going to have to work. They're going to have to get outside. No matter how uncomfortable their comfort zone is, they're going to have to get outside of it. Now, the hills that surrounded Jerusalem are probably covered with trees. Seventy years of the people being in exile, there's probably more wood out there than they needed. 
In Nehemiah 8.15, they say, go to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, other leafy trees. There's a variety of trees to choose from. Now, in Nehemiah, he's talking about building booths for the people. Could be they, they had to go to Lebanon and get cedars. That's what the foundation of the temple had been made out of in 1 Kings 5 and, and later in Ezra, Ezra 3. See, they'd built the foundation. They'd rebuilt the foundation of the temple in Ezra 3. They'd started out well, but then things got hard and they gave up. They started looking at themselves, started being more me-focused than the-focused, as one preacher liked to put it. It's only when we're focused on God we're gonna, that he's going to be pleased and, and glorified because that's what we're told to pray. Not my will, but your will. It's not about me. It's about you, Jesus, right? That's what we sing. That's the heart of the church. We're not promoting a brand. We're not trying to build a franchise here. We're not in the business of, like I said, advertising gadgets and gizmos. We want to give people Christ. We want to give people the gospel. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. That's it. That's the the deception uh, or the, the devious product we're trying to infiltrate your home with, that God loves you enough to die for you, put himself on a cross and take your sin upon himself so that one day you'll rise and get to spend eternity with him. For we're not, Paul says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We have to be willing to ask ourselves those hard questions, even if we don't like the answers. Ask the Holy Spirit to make those answers past tense. They may have been true, but the Holy Spirit convicted me. I made the repairs, I made the rebuild, I repented, and I moved forward. The board read this book a few years ago. It's called uh, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It's by Tom Rayner. And in that book, he talks about a man who goes to visit his friend. His friend has a house with a leaky roof. And all night, he's trying to sleep, and his friend tells him, don't worry about it, we'll fix the roof in the morning. We'll fix the roof in the morning. And so the morning comes, and the sun shines, and the guy, the visitor goes, grabs some, ha- some hammers and some nails. He says, let's go fix the roof. And his friend says, why? Sun's shining. It's not raining now. He doesn't want to recognize there's a problem. He doesn't want to fix it when, when he has a chance. And we cannot afford to do that, church. We have to be honest with ourselves and start the rebuild that we need. But the good news is if, if we do have those problems and we repent, we get on our face in prayer, and we do move as he directs us, God begins to draw us to himself. Verse, verse 9 says, you look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Now, this passage is going to begin similar to verse 6. Um, both underline the outcome of the harvest. You've sown much, but you bring in little. And here it's, you look for much, behold, it comes to little. See, they'd sown much. And they expected much. As I understand it, that's how farming works, right? You, you plant seeds. You expect a, a harvest from those seeds. But that's not what they're seeing happening. It's less than expected. And it, again, if they'd known Scripture, if they'd read the prophets, they'd have seen a little more of what was happening. They would have been a little more aware. Isaiah speaks of this very thing. He says, for 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield but an ephah. The crops the people had harvested, even the crops they'd stored, They were becoming useless. God says, you bring it home and I blow it away. 
Well, that doesn't seem very nice, God. Would you please stop doing that? Well, if we're blunt about it, it's his harvest anyway. If we're honest, it's his harvest. To do with as he pleases. You know the whole thing Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. What Isaiah is saying is he's speaking to the sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of God. And he's even in control of where the grass grows. If you're the creator of life and death, you kind of have a stake in how it gets dispersed. God does. And even in the life and the death of the harvest, so he he blows it away even after they brought it home. And the, the blowing away, by the way, that's a metaphor for the scorching wind that withers crops. In fact, in Hebrew, it seems to have been a sense of fanning up a fire in order to melt metals. The Hebrew word is navak, and it can be translated set aflame or even boiled. The idea would be taking away that which is impure and purifying. It's a purifying wind. The dross is melting away from the gold and the silver. A few pages later in Malachi 3 in your Bible, the, the prophet will mention this. This is a part of who God is. This is a part of his very nature. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. See, God wanted them to figure this out. God wanted them to look around and say, why, why is it every time I try to do something, it all falls apart? I'm like King Midas in reverse. Instead of gold, everything turns to dirt. Why is this happening? But instead, they just get frustrated. They put their hands in their pocket and they go home. Like the, the cartoon character that can't figure out which way the rabbit went. So God asked that question for them. Why? Why does this keep happening to you? Why is the harvest weak? Why does everything fall apart? Because they need to rebuild. God answers his own question. My house lies in waste while you run to yours. The literal meaning there means they're working, they're busying themselves with their own desires, their own, their own house rather than improving the temple. You see, they're adamant about their work, but they're slothful when it comes to God's work. They're zealous for their own families. They don't care about God's family. They're happy to decorate their own homes, but God's temple continues to fall apart. It wasn't about buildings. It was about rebuilding their heart, a rebuilding of their desire for him and their reliance upon him. That's why Haggai keeps saying, the Lord of hosts, the God, the God of armies. So he continues in verse 10. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Now, the actual Hebrew reads, and thus because of you, Heaven withholds. There is a relationship between their attitude and God's reward. That's not prosperity gospel, by the way. That's biblical fact. There's a relationship between our obedience and God's blessing. It doesn't mean God's always going to bless you with things of this world. It doesn't mean God's going to do everything you always ask every time. It doesn't mean it's always God's will to heal. But we cannot be expected to reap goodness when we have sown wickedness. When we suffer loss, when we're hit with a continual kind of defeat, the first reaction should be, Lord, what have I done? Not blaming other people, not making excuses, not lashing out to God. God says, it's because of you. He's trying to get our attention. It was their fault. They had wrong priorities. They had been neglecting God's house, their duties to him, towards his mission. Because of their lack of action, the sky even, even restrained its due. And that's really important in a country like Israel, by the way. The dew 
was a very vital thing. It's not like North Dakota in July and August and early September. They had long, dry summers in the Middle East. They still do. And the only moisture that would get in the air, aside from artificial irrigation, would come from the Mediterranean Sea as it would condense through the cooler nights, and the plants would just soak it up. That's the dew. That's what he's talking about. Dew needed to fall from heaven. Without it, Israel's summer droughts were almost unbearable. So it's a part of their mind. It's a part of their psyche. And having it is a sign of blessing, not having it is a sign of God's wrath. When Isaac blesses Jacob in Genesis 27, he says, now may God give you the dew of heaven. When Moses blesses Israel, he says, so Israel lived in security. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. It's a big deal. It shows God's favor upon them. And again, the opposite is true. When he withholds it, this is clearly the case in, Ahab, in the story of Ahab and Elijah. And if you know that story, if you were here for Bible Trivia Night, you learned some stuff about that. Ahab was a weak man, and he married an evil woman. And together, they led Israel into some of the worst sins Israel would ever commit. And Elijah comes along, the prophet, and he says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. See, it's just as in the days of Elijah. The blessing had been withdrawn. The people needed to rebuild, but it started in their hearts. The last verse in our text reads, verse 11, And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. This is describing in more detail, in more specific detail, the judgment that's fallen on them because of their sloth and their indifference to the temple. A drought on the land, the mountains, the grain, the new wine, the oil, everything, everything is suffering because of their disobedience, because of their selfishness. Ultimately, on all the labor of their hands, their farmers were wasting hours and hours in the field only to never come up with a good harvest. And if what they did come up with wouldn't last, the crops would wilt, their livestock would starve. One commentator said it would have been incredibly ironic if they used the drought as an excuse for not rebuilding the temple. Because without realizing it, not rebuilding the temple is what caused the drought. And this is why God speaks to them. I've told you this before. I've said this before. God is a pushover when it comes to love. When it comes to grace and mercy. I don't say that derogatory about God. That's, that's what his word says. In fact, First John tells us he, God is love. He loves to love his creation. He loves to love his people. The most quoted passage in the Old Testament is in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that love is the workhorse attribute of God. If he was cruel, if he was just stoic, He would have said nothing and let them suffer and just figure it out until they figured it out. And if you're looking in your Bible, you can look down in the next section, the next parochopy, the second half of chapter 1, usually has the title, The People Obey the Lord. Because they got it. Haggai comes, he brings the word of a loving God to them, and he says it's time to rebuild. It's time to fix what you've let stay broken. 
They listen to the word of the Lord and they begin to do what the Lord says. In a month, Haggai's gonna come back to them and he's gonna, he's gonna observe their progress and he's gonna prophesy in Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Don't we want that? Isn't that the cry of our heart? Lord, that the latter glory of this house be greater than it was before. In verse 219, Haggai's gonna come back two months after that and he's gonna tell the people, now purify yourselves, be obedient. He says, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. See, the rebuild is hard. The rebuild of the human heart is much harder. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to do it. Like Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. We need to pray that. We need to be bold enough to listen when we pray that. Rebuilding means pain. It means toil. See, repentance isn't easy. Holiness isn't easy. The old self has to die. Far too often, even as Christians, we fall into sin habits. And we want to build this little world for ourselves. But God says, don't you understand? I've called you to something greater. Now I'm going to move to close in just a moment. But in this small little book, I want you to notice this. In this little bitty book in the New Testament, it's crammed way back at the back of the Old, I'm sorry, at the back of the Old Testament. In this small little book, Haggai comes to Israel three times. Three separate times. The first time he comes, the message is, it's time to get to work. And the second time, it's now look at your work. And the third time is, Now watch as God works. We must set our heart and consider our ways. It means to give very careful thought as to what we're doing. The people of Israel needed to reappraise their priorities from their own inaction to their own fruitless worship. You know, since becoming your pastor, we've used words like recalibration, revitalization, and that's all well and good. We've done remodels, right? And those are fine. We've rewritten the Constitution and bylaws. Those things need to be done. We've written and rewritten policies. But hear me for this. Please understand. It is all for nothing if our hearts remain the same. We even talked at one point about changing the church's name. And maybe someday we'll do that. That's called a rebrand. But if the city of Lisbon sees a new sign, even a new building, but they don't see new people coming out of it, the same people who go in or the same people who come out, it's not going to make a difference. By that, I don't mean new people. I mean the people who come being changed, made new. If there's got to be a rebuild of the church, if the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, it starts with one word, Christ. And a desire to be like him, to change from me to thee. Starts in my heart, starts in your heart, starts in our heart. As we look to the Lord of armies, Yahweh of hosts, and we say, Holy Spirit, rebuild us from the foundation up. Show us the leaky pipe. Show us the falling gutter. Will you pray with me this morning about this? Will you stand up? Stand with me as we pray. Now, if you're here and you want to pray about this further, if you want specific time to pray, we'd be happy to pray with you. If you're here and you're saying, I don't know Christ. I need that heart of stone turned to flesh. That's fine too. We would love to pray with you for that. But this morning, be bold enough. Pray, Holy Spirit, what do I need to rebuild? Where do I need to rebuild? Maybe it's in my marriage. Maybe I've not been the the faithful husband I should be or the faithful wife or 
faithful parent. Maybe it's just in our prayer time, our personal prayer time. Reading the word. Maybe it's in how we treat the people who live around us, the people we work with. Father, today I pray that we, we ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Where does the rebuild need to begin in our lives, in the individual life? Pray we hear your word, we heed your word, and we obey the word of the Lord. Rebuilding means nothing if it's only on the external. Rebuild us from the inside out, Father God. We pray this takes root. This to be a, a daily prayer, a daily seeking after you. Search my heart, O oh God. Lord, I pray you are a treasure. I pray, I pray we glorify you. I pray we, we magnify you in our lives. I pray we're bold in our sharing of you. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that we are obedient to you in everything we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.